Hey everyone, welcome to this episode of Essay Voices from the Field. Each week we aim to bring you the true stories of student affairs. Over the course of this podcast, we hope to bring you both voices that feel like they are telling your own story and those that bring you stories you've never heard before. The podcast with expert guests and practical advice. Get ready to learn and become the best higher ed professional you can be. Welcome to Student Affairs Voices from the Field. This podcast is sponsored by NASPA, the National Association of Student Affairs Administrators in Higher Education. I'm so happy to be your host. My name is Dr. Corliss Bennett. This week, I'm excited to have Gina Mastro-DiCasa from the University of Florida. She is the Associate Vice President there. This show's topic will be about student protests. So thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you very much for having me. And we are excited to have you. Um, NASPA's doing this new endeavor. So let me just start by having you give us a little background about the institution. So the University of Florida is located in north central Florida. We're about two hours drive north of Orlando, and we are the land-grant university in the one of the two land-grant universities in the state of Florida. We are a large research, predominantly white institution. We have about 36,000 undergraduate students. It evolves depending on what numbers you're looking at and what's going on, but we have 36,000 undergraduates. The rest are graduate students. We have some online students, but it is a large research university. We're located in a college town of about 130,000 people live here in Gainesville. So I will tell you that even though we're, we're doing this interview in late November, in Florida, it's actually cold out, which is very exciting for us. So people are wearing coats here today. And that is it a gets big cold in Florida. Wow. <laughs> Where I am, it is cold. There was a freeze warning. It's a very big deal. Flip-flops and jackets. What can I say? Oh, so you said flip-flops and coats, huh? Yes, indeed. <laughs> okay. Well, that's interesting. Tell us a little bit about your areas of responsibility. So I'm a student affairs professional. I am currently working um, in, in operations in the agricultural part of campus. So I still serve on many a committee and many an activity. I'm on the operations, emergency operations center um, representative, but I'm actually primarily working with our facilities and budget and operations for 3,000 faculty and staff who are located not only here in Gainesville, but across the state of Florida. We have extension um, agents in all 67 Florida counties, as well as 16 off-campus research and education facilities. So we have a lot of exciting things that happen here, whether you're talking about student issues or you're talking about animals or plants, there's always something cooking in the agricultural part of the university. And just as a, as a backdrop, um, where, where, where were you before and what were your responsibilities? Like, what, what, where were you before, before Florida? So I've actually been at the University of Florida for 21 years. Oh, um, which wonderful. I still, I'm personally still surprised to say sometimes because uh, like many new professionals, when they, they get into the field, they're very sure they'll never last more than a couple years before they head out to the next greatest place. And um, I just happened to have had five different positions here at the University of Florida. And so my most recent position was I was assistant vice president for student affairs. The other interesting 
thing I'll put out there about myself is I did also serve two terms as a Gainesville City Commissioner. I was elected twice and represented the city at large on the Gainesville City Commission while working full-time in student affairs. So that's interesting because you've got the town and gown piece as well as the higher ed university piece. Since you've been there 21 years, give me a little more of a backdrop of the other five positions. So right before that, you said you did what? So I started as an academic advisor in the College of Liberal Arts and Sciences, and then I moved to the Dean of Students office to be Assistant Dean of Students and Director of Orientation. Then I moved to the Honors Program to become the Associate Director of the University of Florida Honors Program. I then moved over to be the Assistant Vice President for Student Affairs. And then um, in January 2015, I moved to be the Associate Vice President for Operations for UF Institute of Food and Agricultural Sciences. Now, see, that's important to know as we have so many professionals that want to know how someone becomes an associate vice president. So it's very nice to hear that you started off as an academic advisor and just kind of ran with it. I sure did. And it's certainly at the time, I didn't see this path ahead, but looking back, it, it seems very clear. And it's a great example of something I think is really important is that it's all about the skills you develop. It's not necessarily about exactly who you're working for, but the skills you develop. So I'm able to use a lot of the skills I developed working in, in the Division of Student Affairs and just transfer them right on over here. Absolutely. And that's very important for our listeners to, to see that, okay, I can start here and really work through the chain of Student Affairs type positions. So that thank you for sharing that. I really appreciate that because that helps us give a backdrop of your mindset as, as we talk about student protests. With you having been an academic advisor, obviously you know about the one-on-one relationships that we as student affairs professionals have with our students, and then moving into these other with orientation, with the honors program, and then being in the dean of students office and working hand-in-hand with that to what you're doing now with operations. I think I heard you say something. You're part of the emergency system? Yes, I'm part of the emergency operations center when it gets activated. Either if there's two of us for our part of the university and one of us goes and sits in the emergency operations center. We've had three hurricanes come through in the last three years, one each year, that were pretty significant. So I've done a lot with that, that part. And of course, with the topic we'll talk about, the Emergency Operations Center was also activated. Today's topic is student protests. So please share what has happened on your campus with student protests and how your institution handled it and how you handled it, especially being over the emergency operations. I tried to think back with the topics. You know, we've obviously always had some form of student protests on campus for for years and years. When I was in the Division of Student Affairs, I served on the protest team. So that might mean that I would be one of the individuals dispatched to either go monitor the protest to make sure everybody's safe and not disrupting anything, to sometimes I would be the, the representative from the university that would receive the official demand and stand on the steps of the administration building and get the request and bring it back in. So I've done that in my previous position. In the fall of 2017, I think the biggest protest situation we've had of note here anyway was indeed Richard Spencer, the white supremacist, came and gave a talk at one of our facilities. It was just like the ones you've seen across the the nation where it was very controversial of whether or not the university allowed this to take place. And if so, how so? The original date was rescheduled to a later date. But indeed, there was a visit and a speech on October 18th last year, last fall, 
Um, and a lot of people came to town to protest, simply to protest. Our students were heavily involved in the protest. There was a lot of preparation. I think that's probably the biggest lesson and takeaway is how much our campus and community police worked together to prepare. They did everything they could to learn lessons from other communities, including Berkeley, which had had similar speeches not too far ahead of them. They really reached out to gather as much intelligence as they could. I mean, when it came down to it, a large number of people went and showed up and tried to get in to hear the speech. And eventually what ended up happening at the event was the students shouted him down and essentially drowned him out. He left, kind of stopped talking and, and he left. And that was the end of it, really. There were some minor, I don't want to say my, too minor, but there were some um, violent incidents of um, people who clearly came to town to do nothing more than to be disruptive and violent. But I think our police handled it extremely well. But it was definitely a very costly endeavor. Um, both the, the university and the community had to spend a lot of money in physical preparation as well as paying overtime. I think the other thing that happened that was really difficult was you just didn't know what was going to happen. And the university remained open that day. One of the issues was what should the university do? Should they cancel class? Should they close? Should they operate as normal? We had a lot of families contact us being concerned about what we should be doing with, with the university. I will say for me as an administrator, um, I personally went to speak to the staff who are going to be in the buildings adjacent to the protest to mm -hmm. figure out their plan for that day. So there were a lot of different issues about how this should all be managed. Where will people park? Because it was a regular day at the University of Florida. And I don't know, but other universities, but parking is never an easy task on our campus. So if, if we're open for business, are we ticketing? Where are people supposed to go? So it was a lot of logistics and preparation. I think um, our team did a phenomenally wonderful job, both at the university as well as in the community. And it was an intense amount of communication and collaboration and preparation. Um, so the people who really were in the, the front lines, the day-to-day decision-making, I think, did an outstanding job. So this particular speaker was in the evening? He was actually in the afternoon. It was a weekday, and it was in the afternoon. And it was in the afternoon, right in the middle of the day. And technically, classes were open, but it was a very odd day because I would just say I don't think people – it was on everybody's mind. It was scheduled for 2.30 to 4.30 at our Performing Arts Center. And, you know, one of the things I think that many universities across the nation have been really talking about, particularly public universities, of course, what are their policies about renting facilities? Can somebody with no university affiliation rent your facility? Or do they have to have a campus affiliation? Or how does this process work? And this is something I think all public universities, if they haven't done so already, really should examine so that they will indeed treat whoever chooses to rent your facility equally. This is a real question. There are a lot of people very critical. Why did the university let this event happen in the first place? And the answer is, is we kind of have to legally because our right. policy provided for that. Originally, I should add, I mentioned that the speech was supposed to be happening in, it had originally been scheduled and it got rescheduled for a later date. When it was originally scheduled, it was scheduled the same weekend as the Charlottesville incident happened. And so that was cause for everybody to say, let me plan this a little bit differently. So they were able to reschedule it to October. The other interesting thing was figuring out how 
to manage. So I mentioned managing the, the crowd, thinking through how are you going to manage the pro people and the con people and making sure they're hopefully separated somewhat. You know, you don't want a big giant melee in front of you with everybody being able to cause harm upon anybody else. So they really did a lot of preparation and they also prohibited a lot of items in the area. So they actually had a whole area around the venue blocked off where they prohibited things like bicycles, scooters, skateboards, obviously weapons, lighters. They even banned things like backpacks and and things like that. The other thing I would say is our university president was very vocal about this topic. And I think he spent a lot of time representing uh, public universities and saying, you know, is this something we do as we are a public institution? He was pretty vocal um, out there talking with his colleagues and other university presidents, because it was indeed financially and emotionally very draining activity on our campus. Interesting. So there were rules and was there a tape-off situation so that when you're closer to the building, so that's where the no barracks, no weapons and no skateboards, was it a taped-off area? Yes, it was was actually more formally barricaded. It was um, one of the fears was what if you could drive a vehicle into the crowd? Because of course, what happened in Charlottesville was on everybody's mind. So they really did a lot of things to try to keep everybody safe and to make sure that there was a process. They distributed tickets a certain way. They, but when the, when the individual rented the facility, they had specified how they wanted the ticket distribution to happen. So they tried to control who was going into the speech. I would say it was kind of a mix of people who got into it, but overall it was very well managed. It was, it was quite the endeavor. And um, I, I really think the hardest part of all is figuring out who's supposed to pay for all this cost, because you, you're not allowed to bill the speaker for incidental costs. You can bill them for direct costs, such as the rental of the facility um, and things like that. But the indirect costs for the, uh, we had, I would say, a lot of police activity. I think there was even a state of emergency declared by the state of Florida. So it was, it was a very big deal at the time. Wow. So you have the barricade area. Was, was it a sold out situation where you also had to deal with people who wanted to come in and couldn't? You know, the ticket, I think there were people who did want to get in that didn't, but it wasn't. I actually think most of the people who went to the protest area that afternoon or went to the area really didn't necessarily want to go in and hear the speech. I think they were there to either protest the other side, um, whether you're pro or con. Um, And then there were some people who did go into the venue. The venue only holds mm, 1,200 maybe, Um, so 1,700. there was a limit to how many people could get in to hear him speak. So in essence, you still have people that were just there to protest, no matter if it started or not, basically. And there were a lot of people there just to protest, whether they were students or community members. And there are people who traveled here um, either to be supportive of the speaker or to protest the speaker. So there were a lot of people there. And like I said, many were students and many were not. So it was a community event in that sense that a lot of people did travel to be in the mix somehow. And I think when you read about what's happened at other similar universities and other these kinds of projects, this type of public speaking is really um, attracting uh, people to come and protest on either pro or, or con. 
Interesting. Yes, I can. I could see that. Now, if I heard you correctly, you said that he ended up leaving the stage because they were booing or chanting. Did I hear you say they that correctly? Did. They did. They they did indeed. Um, they did indeed uh, sh- drown him out um, with noise um, at some point during the talk, and he did not stay on the stage nearly as long as he had told the organizers he would. And I, I think the speaker was disappointed, I guess. He didn't get to finish, but that was really the, the end of it. There wasn't anything else beyond that. So he did indeed leave early. Um, the, the students and others who attended who did attend and shout we're happy that they were able to end his speech early. Okay, so for example, at an institution that I worked at, um, one of the rules when you do have that type of situation is, yes, you can protest, but if you're going to be holding signs or making no, well, first of all, if you're going to be holding signs, you have to sit in the back of the venue so that you're not to block people who are there who have paid or not paid, but have tickets to, because they're, they're wanting to see the speaker. So you have them sitting in the back so that there's no blockage. But were there any rules about actually shouting at the speaker? Because I know one of the things that when we talk to our students is like, okay, yes, you can protest, but you cannot disrupt a program. Just like you can't block the president's right. office if you're going to be in the hallway and blocking the administration. People still have to be able to come in and out. So there's kind of rules per se to protesting. Did you guys not have something like that? I was not actually in the venue. I do believe that the venue folks did their best to try to allow the activity to happen. It just simply devolved to a point where he got frustrated and left. I think because he he was able to take questions from the audience. He also was joined on stage by another individual to say hello to the crowd. I just think overall, it was a relatively, I guess I would just say it probably was, could be described as a rowdy event with an attempt to do exactly as you say, to allow the speaker to continue. I think just the sheer volume and numbers of people in the room did what they could, but it was the speaker did choose to leave early and not stay to the end. So in actuality, he did get through whatever he was going to say because you're saying that he was able to answer a few questions. He was, he did, he did get to speak, but I just don't think he stayed as long as he intended. Got it. Okay. Can we talk a little bit about, because I like, appreciate that you said it's really about the preparation piece. And unfortunately your institution, like you said, they have to pay a lot of money to make sure that your university police is in place, that you made sure that the adjacent buildings and that staff, you know, knew what was going on. And just in case it broke out into something worse, you know, that they would be prepared. Talk a little bit about the preparation, because I think our listeners want to know things that you have in place. I think we have parking. There was a um, over uh, an evaluation of who was going to park where. There was a, a few. There were a few buildings nearby that were closed for the event. One includes an academic building. One includes the student recreational center, um, as well as the museum. It had to be closed for the day. They had to reroute the buses who bring students around for classes. So there had to be some transportation things taken care of. It was a hot day. So that was something else of concern because people were not allowed to bring in water. So there was a lot of focus on making sure people were physically okay. Preparation wise, there were a lot of police officers who came and patrolled the area um, looking for things ahead of time to make sure that things like weapons weren't being hidden in the bushes or anything else. And 
that, that sounds, you know, a little, I guess, exciting, but really we have a very large campus. There's a lot of wood. It'd be very easy to go three days ahead of time and hide something that you intend to retrieve three days later. So we did have a lot of people on the ground looking for items to make sure there was nothing like that, nothing nefarious. Traffic was not allowed to go to that section of campus at all for several hours before the event. Weeks ahead of the event, we sent a team from um, our campus and community police department out to visit Berkeley to actually meet with the people out there who had just gone through a similar event to figure out what lessons they could learn and bring back both student affairs as well as to the community and campus police department. Um, I, I, I think overall they had very good communication and preparation. Just learning what today's protest looks like and who are, who are the people who are choosing to come there, what kinds of things they want to do. I think it was very informative. There was a recent article in, I believe it was the New York Times Magazine, talking about trying to be a police officer in the days where you have things like white nationalism and realizing there's not a lot of information about this. And it it actually profiled one of our our police officers from our community who was opened the article with, I was getting ready for the Richard Spencer speech, trying to find out what kinds of people are, are likely to show up. And there was very little intelligence information out there. And and I think that's just something to be aware of is that I don't know if this is going to be a trend that continues or, or not, but either way, it is something that our police and campus communities are learning more and more about every day because we simply don't know that much. All right. Thank you for joining us today. It was an exciting topic. Thank you for sharing the ins and outs of student protests over at the University of Florida. So this is Dr. Corliss Bennett signing off for now and have a great day or evening. Thanks for listening to Student Affairs Voices from the Field. If you enjoyed your time with us, tell a friend. If there's a topic you want us to discuss, let us know. If you want to be a guest, tell us your story. Email us at savoices at naspa.org. You can find all our info at naspa.org slash savoices. See you next time.